Welcome everyone to the, today's episode of the Berkeley Center for Law and Technology's Expert Series podcast. This is Wayne Stacy, the Executive Director for BCLT. And today we're gonna talk about some unusual guidance the USPTO issued on the use of prophetic examples. Uh, to help us through this discussion, we have two experts from McDermott, Will and Emory. Uh, we have Jenny Chen, a partner in the Boston office specializing in life sciences and, and really kind of all aspects of the, the IP world in life, in life sciences, including prosecution, counseling, and diligence work. Uh, we also have with us Eva Wojciechowski, uh, the author of a recent article on prophetic examples and part of the IP litigation group. And it was actually her article that um, created a lot of interest in this topic and got it out in front of a lot of people, probably got it out in front of more people than the actual federal register did. So with that in mind, let me start with the first question. And, and that's that the fact that the USPTO took the unusual step and published a warning to patent prosecutors in the federal register. And, you know, it's, it's a pretty stark warning. Uh, what's the language it's used of? The USPTO is reminding applicants. And when I went back and I looked through the Federal Register, that's not what they typically put out there. They don't remind applicants in this kind of formal way. So my question is, why did the PTO need to go down this path of a formal warning? Uh, and, and why now? So I can share um, my thoughts on that. The I assume there are more and more prophetic examples being presented in patent applications, specifically after the law change back in 2013. I mean, prophetic examples have been used in patent applications over time, but in the past, um, the when an applicant does not have real uh, working examples, some, the, in many cases, they would decide to push back the filing until they get enough data. However, after AIA, the law change, um, US is now also in the first event to, to file the, the regime. So really the filing date does matter and it's more like a race to file applications with the USPTO. And under this new, um, the, 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 the structure, filing structure, people would tend to file early. Um, and in that case, the inventors may not have enough time to collect enough data and present real work examples. So um, the alternative is really to um, present the prophetic examples. And um, during prosecution, I mean, prophetic examples, so like in the past, we don't see examiners question whether, you know, you have prophetic or real working examples and they, examiners could rely on those to um, assess like a utility or enablement requirement. However, um, when you have more working, the, the prophetic examples presented, it does raise the question as to whether the inventor actually had possession or had enabled the, the invention they tried to claim. And if it's not clear to the examiner whether you have real working example versus prophetic example, it will be hard for examiners to make decision on things like this. Well, the, the PTO went further than the, the warning and, and gave some best practices, yeah. which I assume was a, 
a collection of examiner complaints about uh, different applications that had bubbled up. Uh, things like using the proper verb tense, uh, yeah. which is a pretty specific warning. Uh, separate labeling of examples, uh, whether they're prophetic or whether they're actual data. Do you see uh, any significant changes in the way patent prosecutors need to, to handle their work going forward? So um, I would assume this is also going to go to like the trainings on the prosecutor's path. And in my own practice, I stick uh, very closely to the rule. When it's a working example, I use past tense. And when it's a prophetic example, we use either present tense or future tense. And when for prophetic examples, when we are expecting some results out of the prophetic example, we always use terms like we expect, like an inventor, or this is expected. We would never say this is something we you see, so kind of like a mislead the examiner to believe that some experiments have been performed. However, um, the in in our real practice, we do see the confusion between the two types of examples presented in the um, in in applications. It's hard for us to tell whether it's intentional, whether just the careless, or there are other reasons. Like for example, um, there are lots of uh, filings from foreign applicants. And in some language, there's no past tense, present tense difference. So the, uh, the, when you have some applications actually translated from foreign um, filing, it's hard to tell whether it's a working example or um, it is a prophetic example. So this can cause some confusion the, uh, with the patent office. In those translated situations, Jenny, what's, what people need to be looking for to, to make sure that we're clear in the process of, of prosecuting those patents? So um, I would say one is, so for foreign cases, usually there's a foreign agent involved. And if time permits, we would want to make clear with the foreign um, agent to make clear that the if there's any question with respect to one example, we want to figure it out. For some, in some cases, it's very clear that the, the experimental data presented in the example, so you're, you, it would be no doubt that it's a working example. However, if there, the data is not clear and the, if the some language there would suggest that the inventors haven't been performed that type of experiments, we will want to make it clear. And then in some cases, um, the oftentimes the, the, we get the, uh, the instructions from foreign agent for filing like a last minute kind of thing, you probably won't get into the, uh, the enough time to figure out those facts. Then um, I think the best practice is really to figure those things out um, the afterwards. And then during prosecution, you want to make it clear to the examiner which examples are working examples and which ones are prophetic. I guess that raises a whole new new set of problems for anybody relying on machine translations, which I think the exactly. USPTO sees a lot of. Yeah. Well, so it's, it's really easy for, for people like me that are steeped in the electrical and computer backgrounds to, to look at prophetic examples and, and just kind of wave it off because that only applies to, to the life sciences industry. Um, is there something that the 
the prosecutors that are doing electrical and mechanical and the computer arts need to be thinking about here too? Um, so I don't do a lot of work in the mechanic and computer science space, but I think the standard would be the same. And what I can tell from mechanic practice, like I say, oftentimes when inventor try to claim a machine, the machine probably have never been made real. And usually it's just like the other um, drawings from different angle kind of thing. And usually, you know, those are the ways to present in the mechanic application. Um, so the, I think in the computer science and mechanic part, it's relatively um, rare to do the prophetic example, not like life science, because you usually have some idea, but you don't know whether it, you don't have the, the data to kind of prove like your idea actually will work in the way you expect it. Um, but I think that the, the, the basic standard would be the same across all technology space. Well, kind of shifting over to the district court side, the litigation side, the enforceability of these patents, um, it, it appears that the PTO has a standard now that's going to be quoted back against patent prosecutors for when they get accused of inequitable conduct, um, that whole standard of knowingly asserting in a patent application that a certain result was run or, or an experiment was conducted, I think is their language. Um, mm -hmm. Do you think that this is the type of issue that's going to start popping up in diligence and in a kind of aggressive life sciences litigation? Um, so on the litigation side, I would like, like uh, let Eva chime in since she is a litigator, and I certainly can um, be uh, the talk about the, this question uh, as a prosecutor. Thank you, Jenny. Certainly, this, this can absolutely have an impact. The part that is the trickiest here, not surprisingly, is the knowingly part of that language. Proving that a party affirmatively knew something, such as that the information it was relying on is false, is frequently very difficult to successfully establish in a case. And the bar for showing inequitable conduct has been enhanced in the recent years. This new guidance could make things more complicated for patent owners trying to enforce their patent rights. For example, an alleged infringer could potentially claim that the patent owner committed fraud before the patent office during prosecution. And here, of course, that fraud would be not including the right type of example or using an incorrect tense with an example in the patent itself which could open the door for not only the patent owner not being able to enforce its rights against the alleged infringer, but to the potential invalidation of the patent itself. Of course, because this guidance is so new, it is difficult to say how exactly it will be interpreted. Will it rise to a level of a presumption of fraud when inappropriate, inappropriately described examples are included in the patent implication? I think that seems relatively unlikely, but the reality is that we just don't know. Even if it's not a presumption of fraud, the classification of not properly describing examples in the patent by the patent office certainly adds to an alleged infringer's defense arsenal. This is certainly something for both sides of the patent world, both litigation and prosecution to pay close attention to. And to add to that, the guidance and its broad classification here could also have an impact on IP transactions or IP in transactions. Careless prosecution in that it failed to comply uh, with the patent office's guidance 
could make some patents riskier than others in that they could be more difficult to enforce and more difficult to defend. So this could potentially impact the patent's value in a portfolio, assuming the party interested in the portfolio even knows about this caveat. This could in turn lead to parties interested in acquiring patents taking extra steps to minimize the risk stemming from their desired patent acquisition, potentially not complying with this new guidance. So this new guidance just issued on July 1st of this year could have very significant consequences, not just for prosecution, but for litigation and intellectual property transactions as well. However, the key here, what we need to remember is that we have to wait and see how this new guidance gets interpreted by the agencies and by the courts to be able to form better practical predictions going forward. So I, I spent most of my life as a trial lawyer and I, I know that it, when you put five or six trial lawyers on a team, they can make a mess of everything. So um, <laughs> what it seems like is we're gonna be living with some uncertainty and probably undoubtedly seeing some people throw this around in, in the hopes of using it for leverage until we get a little more, little more guidance on it, but. Uh, yeah. And I, I think certainly on the prosecution side, this is going to prompt the uh, prosecutors to be more careful during prosecution if there is a need to rely on such prophetic example to show enablement or utility. So um, from the prosecution history, if there is anything indicated that the applicant actually misled the examiner to believe a prophetic example is a real example and then uh, rely on that to establish enablement or utility that could be a smoking gun moving forward. Um, similarly, it's not just in the, uh, the drafting application. This could also um, be an issue um, in data presenting during prosecution, like a, particularly in the life science space, it's very common to provide post-filing data during prosecution to um, convince the examiner that the, the, the inventor actually the, um, enable specifically to meet the enablement and sometimes the utility requirement in, in the life science therapeutic space. And, and I recall there are actually real cases where um, the prosecutors presented something and let the examiner believe the inventor actually done the, the experiment and turn out this is just the inventor's reasonable expectation and nothing had been done. And that caused some problem uh, in, in, in real cases. So I think that moving forward, prosecutors certainly will be more careful and um, rely on such data and make clear to the examiner whether something has been done already or whether this is just the inventor's reasonable expectation. And I know it's early. Uh, have you seen any evidence so far that the examiners are reacting to this specific guidance? We haven't seen anything in real practice. Well, it's, uh, it's would, I guess it's only been, been around a month or so, so it'll be unusual to see it so far, but it will be interesting to watch going forward whether examiners start citing this, start using it to ask questions, um, to, to push applicants a little bit harder. On, on anything that's unclear. Um, yeah, I believe so. And I think usually when you have a guidance like that, the examiners will have internal training at the PTO side and uh, the, uh, pretty much those training would require them to pay more close attention on those examples and 
push on the applicant side to make it clear. Well, Jenny, Eva, thank you for, for your insight today. Um, my guess is we'll be following up with you as this uh, travels through the, through the year and what we, what we learn uh, if examiners are actually going to care or not care. Um, so look forward to talking with you again, and thank you for your time.